Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Last time on Man of the Crowd. What are your impressions of Jim? Crazy. Jim is hyper, hyper competitive. He can never lose even when he's won. So he's not. When I would talk to Jim and he was struggling with the management there, try to have a direct relationship, you know, with Jed York. I mean, that's your, that's your owner, that's the guy, you know, do whatever you can. And, and, and he did, he tried to do that. And there were times I didn't have a friend. Uh, as you know, I, sometimes I wear those out. Uh, sometimes he was my only friend. He got mistreated really badly in one of those jobs, really badly. And I know that. Yeah, I do think Jim is misunderstood sometimes. When Paul Brown invented game film, they said he was cheating. The innovators always get accused, and it's because they're far ahead. So Jim's inventing things, and he's more clever than lots of the people he competes with. Right, because people assume the worst. I, I think the agent of change is never really the most popular person in, a, in any room. Also, people try to intimidate you. Best part of life to me is competing. But if that offends somebody, then, then so be it. From the Baltimore Ravens, this is Man of the Crowd, a multi-episode podcast that pulls back the curtain on Ravens figures' personal lives. This season, the Harbaugh family. I'm Sarah Ellison. Who could possibly have it better than us? Nobody! We're going to attack this day with an enthusiasm unknown to mankind. Because you are fighters. And that's what you are going to be. Today, tomorrow, you are going to fight. I'm walking on shaky ground in this episode. And that's because the Harbaugh's don't like comparisons. No, that's not strong enough. The Harbaugh's detest comparisons. All of us reporters who cover the family, we are very careful in how we phrase questions so as not to get a scolding lecture on how comparisons leave one person feeling diminished. In fact, I had never met or spoken to Mark Snyder from the Detroit Free Press before interviewing him for this podcast, but I instantly felt a kinship with him. Um, I was kind of comparing him, which, you know, the Harbaugh's hate comparisons, but he was doing it. Yeah, <laughs> and, right. um, it diminishes someone, right? You've heard that line. For sure. I mean, it's, right. it's the family is so sensitive to it. That Jackie called me out during one part of our interview together, and I didn't even know I was asking a comparison question. Tell me, um, how would you describe first John as a child? Uh, if you're going to get into comparisons between them, I'm real. I'm not going to go there because yeah. if I say something one way, then it's going to reflect. On the other. On the other. Yeah. Believe me, I get it. I understand where the Harbaugh's are coming from for sure. Having said that, it is super hard to avoid noting the similarities and differences between two brothers who made Super Bowl history, and I'm doing a nine-episode podcast on them. Plus, I have on occasion, the very seldom occasion, heard the Harbaugh's praise reporters for good comparisons. Tim Kawakami from the San Jose Mercury News, he's earned that distinct honor before. Once you, when you got there? Yes, it does. It's a, it's a very fair and, and good comparison. Let's repeat that. You know, just for the record. Yes, it does. It's a, it's a very fair and, and good comparison. See? Look at that. Jim approved a comparison. Now, the specific comparison that Kawakami made is irrelevant. 
The relevant point is that it can be done. So the standard has been set. And my goal is to reach or surpass it. My challenge is to make fair and accurate comparisons between John and Jim. And hopefully I don't get any stern emails or phone calls from the Harbaugh's. Well, the irony of this whole thing is that it was my interview with Jackie that provided the foundation of this entire episode of Comparisons and Shadows. Jackie and I watched highlights together of Super Bowl 47 so she could give me her reaction and perspective on the game. And she had never watched this clip before, by the way. So this is her raw reaction. Congratulations. Oh, I love you. Congratulations. Hey, you too. Good job. Proud of you. It was a hard game for them to watch. And when it was all said and done, they felt happy and they felt sad at the same time. We made this all happen, Mom, for both of us. There are no losers. There are no losers. There are no losers. Was that great? Yeah. It's like you said, he deserved that moment to celebrate with him. Yeah, he did. It brings tears to my eyes thinking about it because it's huge, you know. It's, um, they both traveled a different path. And John traveled a long path, uh, you might say in Jim's shadow in a sense, and never resented a moment of it. Mm. Never resented a moment of it. But as I said before, always in the back of his mind was, you know, if it happens for me, I have a plan. And he's working on that plan. I'm proud of him for that. And I'm proud of Jim for the path they took. Out of the dozens of interviews I've conducted over the last year, this soundbite from Jackie tugs at my heartstrings the most. And maybe it's just because I'm a mom with competitive children too, but I can put myself in her shoes. All any parent ever wants is to be proud of their children and help make them happy. The Super Bowl was obviously a monumental moment for both John and Jim, and she was equally proud of both. But they each took his own path to get there, and neither path was better or worse than the other, just different. And as Jackie emotionally noted, John's path was long and in the giant shadow that Jim cast. Now you may be asking yourself, wait, Jim is casting the giant shadow? Isn't he the younger brother? Yeah, he is. It's just by 15 months, which doesn't amount to much now that they're 54 and 53 years old, but 15 months usually makes a big difference when you're 9 and 10, or even as teenagers. But despite being the younger brother, Jim was the one who got the most attention in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where the two boys spent most of their signature years of their young lives. Here's the best way I can sum up the shadow that John lived in, or should I say, is still living in. There's, you know, who's going to win? Who do you want to win? You know, I, uh, I had a partial for John because I, he, he, he graduated with me. So uh, I figured Jim would make it back the next year or something like that. So That was Von Belanger. He was an Ann Arbor Junior Packers and Pioneer High School teammate from when the boys were young. He was basically saying that he was rooting for John to win because he thought that Jim would have another shot at a Super Bowl in another year, meaning there wasn't enough faith in John to return. And Belanger wasn't the only one who expressed that sentiment either. Okay, we need to back up here. What's happened over the years with these two brothers that makes people from back home believe in Jim's ability more than John's? Well, you can trace it all the way back to when little Johnny and Jimmy first started to fall in love with football as young boys. And while everyone assumes it was Jack, the 40-year-plus football coach, who got them into the sport, the family actually credits Jackie for introducing them. But she didn't make the introductions because she envisioned them becoming NFL players or coaches. She just wanted them to know what their father did for a living. Everyone on the outside knows what these two have accomplished in the coaching realm of, of, of football. When did you as a father know that the two men seating next to you would be great coaches. This is the Harbaugh family at a Michigan coaches clinic in 2016. First of all, uh, Jackie, please stand up. Please stand up and be recognized. Jackie Harbaugh. And, and, and the reason I, I recognize her, I, I just tell a story that's been told before, but I was in a coaching class at Bowling Green State University 
in 1958. And Doit Perry, the beloved great Doit Perry, a Hall of Fame coach, the stadium down there at Bowling Green's named after him, he was teaching the class. He was there every single day. And there were about 30 football coaches in there taking the class, and I was one of them. And he 30 stood, football players, you mean? 30 football players. They wanted to get a grade. They, they were looking for the grade. Smart. A for athlete, I think is the way he grade. But anyway, he taught the class, and the first day he went, and he looked out, just like I'm looking out here at this crowd. You all want to be football coaches, don't you? And all 30 of us waved, you know, waved our head. Yes, that's what we want to do. We want to be football coaches. I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell you how you can become a football coach. Three things. I'm going to start with number three. Number one, you better have a love and a passion for this game. Every day you wake up, you're excited to get to that office, to meet that first challenge. And there will be a challenge that particular day, and you better be ready to meet it. A love and passion for the game. Number two, you better be smarter than anyone you coach against. And Deutsch said, the reason I say that is, I know most of you in this room, and you aren't very smart. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of guys out there smarter than what you are. So you better outwork them. You better work harder than anyone you play against. And number one, and you can just imagine, just like if you've not heard this story, you're on the end of your seat, aren't you? What is number one? Number one was Mary wisely <laughs> because if you don't have a good wife if you don't have a wife and understand i applaud the story i love the story but i see the apple doesn't fall far from the tree you're a true coach you didn't answer the question what was the question oh what these <laughs> this is like a press conference I, I uh i know i'm talking too much but just no i love it just two things what was the question what was the <laughs> question <laughs> We said we weren't very smart. Where did we lose it? Where did we lose it? What was the original question? When you first saw the sign of a great coach in both of your sons. Maybe he didn't. Is that possible? I think it's what John said. He didn't see it. Big, big read amount of anything. But one thing Jackie said one time, we were doing. We were. We were doing an interview for the Super Bowl, and they came into our home, and the cameras set up, and. Jackie and I are talking, and, and they asked Jackie a question, that same question. Yeah, okay. When did you know that John and Jim and, and Joni marrying a basketball coach, when did you know that they were destined for, for athletics and, and, for, and for coaching? And she made a statement that I had never heard in our entire married life, and the statement went something like this. The thing I chose to do very early in their lives, in Joni's life, I wanted them to know what their father did. I, want the, I wanted them to know when he left at 6 o'clock in the morning before the sun came up, where he was going and what he was doing. And I wanted, when he came home at 10.30 at night or 10 o'clock or whenever, they heard the door open in their room and the door closed, and that was pretty much at the end of that. I wanted to know what they did. So she brought our youngsters to practice. When they were in strollers, she would bring them out and put them on the sideline and they would watch. Players would come over and don't fool with them, you know, rub their heads and how you tough, let me hit me, you know, with all that stuff. And they got to know the players. And then when they got into high school, Bo allowed them to come to practice along with Jerry and Gary's kids. And they hung around the, the practice thing. But it was a process that she introduced them to athletics. They evidently saw some things that they liked about playing and coaching, and, and then they pursued it. They did it. We, we were just chaperones watching and, and enjoying the, the process. So I would suggest for some of you young coaches that have youngsters, they, you can't be with them 24 hours a day, but there's not a reason that they can't come and be with you. They all joked about Jack forgetting the original question, but come on, he didn't really forget it. And I know that because I've heard him give that exact answer to that exact question on more than one occasion. After hearing Jack's response to this question a few times, I picked up on two important trends. First, he always, always points to Jackie when people ask about the success of their children. Second, he never, ever points to a single moment when he knew the kids would become great coaches. Okay, for just a couple minutes, 
This is where I want to take a small detour. It's still on the topic about the brothers' paths and the shadow cast by Jim, but the very beginning of their paths started with mom. That's true of most of us, right? Well, I would be remiss if I wrote a nine-episode podcast on John Harbaugh and his family and not talk more about Jackie. Jack called her his hero, which, may I say, is just heartwarming. She is most deserving of that honored title, and the family clearly cherishes the work and sacrifices Jackie made while the couple raised their three children. You know, lots of people ask me how Jack and Jackie met. What's their whole backstory? Well, they've been together for 59 years, 55 of them married. After meeting in a freshman biology class, at Bowling Green State University. We're in a biology class. We're alphabetized A, B, C, C. I'm looking down into the C section. I see Sapiti. C-I-P-I-T-I. Most gorgeous individual I'd ever seen in my life. Tell me about your first date. First date, we we had no money. So we just walked around campus and for about an hour just talking and that kind of became a routine date for us. Now, tell me, when you first met Jack, was it love at first sight for you? Uh, no. No. <laughs> and it wasn't for him either. So. Really? No, I don't think so. We were, we were just, we became friends. My mind wasn't focused on um, getting into any, you know, serious relationships. I had to finish college. Mm-hmm. And my plan was not to get married till I was 28 years old or something like that, you know. So they dated off and on for four years throughout college, and they ultimately got engaged to be married. But first, after graduation, Jack was drafted into the NFL in 1961. And meanwhile, Jackie was accepted into President John F. Kennedy's newly developed Peace Corps. She was scheduled to head to Penn State to be trained for her work for underdeveloped areas in the Philippines. They thought the timing was perfect. He'd play football for four or five years, and she'd work in the Philippines, and then they'd get married afterwards. But something unexpected happened. Hey, now I noticed that you played for one year for the New York Titans. No. No? What what happens if if you're Whip-A-Kitty or whatever? What is that? Whip-A-Pity? Oh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia. It's wrong. If it's wrong. You, am, I, am I legally responsible for that? No, but I can write into Wikipedia for you if you want me to. You it's, never played. I did. I, I, was, I was with the Buffalo Bills. Oh, it's the Buffalo Bills. For three days. <laughs> not, okay. not a year. What happened in those three days? I got cut. <laughs> <laughs> with his NFL career being cut so short, Jack went straight back to Jackie. So he came home, and I think I said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and, and he said, well, I didn't make it, so, um, you know, we can make plans and everything. I said, no, I'm going. I'm going to Peace Corps training. Right. And yeah. I went to the training, and I, I was accepted. <clears throat> but then there was a guy who was there in the training, and I guess I had my engagement ring on. Uh-huh. And he said, are you engaged? I said, yes. He said, what are you doing here? And I, you know, I, because I was all into that. You were focused. Yeah. Yeah. Into doing this. I thought it was important. I thought it was a great idea. Um, and I, I guess I thought about it, you know, and then I chose the other path right. and came home. Um, but one thing, one lesson I learned from that was from a, a Filipino because they had sent some people over to train. And he said that a Filipino saying is, um, you gave me wings to fly and then you took away the sky. So I tried to always remember that when the kids were growing up. Right. You know, because um, you have to give them the opportunity to fly. Right. But don't ever take that opportunity away from them. And I guess um, that was always stuck in the back of my mind the whole time. The Harbaugh children are forever grateful that their mom chose the path of family and mother. 
As Jack said, she was the rock of the family as they moved 17 times. Back in the 1960s, you had to get a master's degree to even coach. And once you got that, you usually got your first job coaching in high school, and then you worked your way up. That's exactly what the Harbaugh's did during Jack's 43-year career. We were just so busy raising a family that it was a day-to-day situation. You had to do what you had to do every day. You didn't make a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. So it was all those years when they were babies and toddlers. It was moving all the time. Right. And nobody paid for your moves then either. Oh, no. And we'd pack everything up ourselves. I mean, we didn't have a lot of stuff. Right. So did you ever, ever, were there any moves where you were like, oh, I don't want to do this again? Or were you just like, okay, new opportunity, let's go? No, I mean, he, he always took the job. Right. So you never asked how much money are you making or, you know, what's the situation like? You just got there and you did what you had to do. Jackie sounds kind of amazing, doesn't she? So selfless and all in for the family. Well, that brings us back to John and Jim and when she first introduced them to football by taking them to Jack's work. I think because I took them to practice mm-hmm. and sometimes um, the I think because they watched what he did, that stuck subconsciously, I think, with them all these years. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I didn't have influence as far as what they know about football or anything. No. So I always believed that your kids should know what their father does. And I don't really ever think anybody thought at that time that we're going to be coaches or I'm ever going to get a scholarship to play in college. We as parents didn't think that way. Right. You know, maybe... You just the, wanted to have a good experience. Good experience, you know. Have fun. Oh, you're capable of doing this? That's great. Do you enjoy it? Yes. Okay. So the goal wasn't to get the kids into sports and football. Jackie and Jackie weren't plotting the kids' football careers. The goal was about family. Building a strong, productive, happy family. And with dad leaving before sunrise and getting home after sunset, mom was determined to bring the kids into dad's world and let them see why he was absent from home. Now, of course, a natural side effect to Jackie's desire to provide that strong fatherly presence was the planting of a small football seed that ultimately, but unintentionally, blossomed into the historic coaching tree we see today. That seed underwent an especially healthy growth spurt when it was nourished by the Michigan Wolverines football program and the Ann Arbor Junior Packers. Okay, so you remember when Jack said he never specifically saw a single moment that he knew his kids would be great? Well, that's because he wasn't looking. But others were. Friends, coaches, teammates, they were all watching. That's just what happened because they were the sons of a Michigan football coach. But here's what they started to notice right off the bat. First is Pioneer High School coach Chuck Ritter. It doesn't surprise me that both of them ended up as outstanding coaches. When you get them together, they mix very nicely. But if you just see one at a time, you say, oh, Jim's the one that's in, in your face and John's a quiet one. Of course, we now know John isn't so quiet, but. That's how Ritter remembers him in high school. And when we pressed for more memories of John as a high schooler, Ritter said, I I don't remember because he was a good player, but he was not a loud person. But he could remember Jim. When people ask me about Jim, I tell them three things. He's smart, he's hardworking, and he hates to lose. Belanger, the boy's former teammate, has more vivid memories. I'll tell you what, uh, growing up with those two guys, uh, Jim, uh, you always knew he was going to be a great athlete because he had he had such a skill set. He just was he had that that it that a lot of kids have at that age. Uh, he just excelled above other people. John worked really hard, and you always knew John was going to be a coach. John had 
he studied that game. And at a high school level, that was, especially in the 79, 78, we were in there doing, just playing football. John was a different level. John played defensive back in high school, and he sometimes pokes fun at himself by saying he was an undersized football player. Well, maybe he didn't have the God-given athleticism, but what stuck out in teammates' minds like Belanger's is how tough he was, just like he still is today. Well, John would come up hard, and uh, he, uh, he, had a, he had a neck collar, at, I think, at one point because he uh, had a uh, stinger in his neck or something, and he would still go and stick his head in there and really rack it. And, and, and that day, you could. <laughs> Football was important to him more than other people on that, on, that, on that team. You could always tell. As a senior in 1979, John injured his knee and missed the first seven games of his final high school season. Belanger recalls how important it was for John to rehab and make it back to the field. His hard work and drive did not go unnoticed by coaches and teammates. By the time he returned, Jim had gone from being the JV backup to the JV starter to the varsity backup and then the varsity starter all while he was just a sophomore. His coaches called him the real deal. Guess who was benched in favor of him? John Minnick. You know, the son of John and Jim's first football coach for the Junior Packers? The one who hates 2% milk? Yeah, him and his son. The three Minnick sons, John, Jeff, and Jim, and the Harbaugh boys, John and Jim, I know, lots of J names, well, they were close childhood friends during those years in Ann Arbor. And in this NFL Network feature, John Minnick recalls the exact game and the exact time in which coaches approached him and told him that Jim would take his place as the starting quarterback. I can remember the game vividly. It was the fifth game of our junior year. I don't remember the score, but we were, we were losing. And the coach came up to me at, at halftime and said, hey, uh, Jim Harbaugh is going to go at quarterback. Just like that. I remember Jim was gracious, humble, poised, but yet very confident when he came in and became the starting quarterback as a sophomore. Was I disappointed? Sure, but how do you react to your best friend who you know is a special athlete? And you knew that? I knew it long before even Pioneer, of course I knew that. With Jim at quarterback and John just returning from injury, the brothers got to play two games of varsity football together. John was usually the leader on defense, but he was also used on offense when times called for it. Well, it's, it's, it's amazing to be back here. It's the first time I've been back here since high school, since 1980, which is pretty incredible. And uh, it looks pretty much the same to me. I mean, this, this, this wing down here, this might have been the science wing down here. I didn't really spend much time down here. John gave us a tour of Pioneer High School when he was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 2016. And while there, he recalled some memorable plays he had on the field, including a very special moment with his brother that had never happened before or since. The last game was against Ann Arbor Huron, our arch rival, who we never lost to the whole time I was here, even in 22 years up until that point. And uh, we were in a tight game, and my brother had, brought up to, had been brought up to be the quarterback uh, during the time that I was gone, so he was the starting quarterback. And I came back, was playing wing back in the wing tee, and he hit me in a deep pass up the sideline, as I remember it, deftly juked somebody, made a miss, stepped over somebody else. Didn't quite score. But uh, then the loudspeaker saying, Harbaugh to Harbaugh for the first time. So that was pretty cool. Pioneer finished that season with a 4-5 and five record. Only the team's second losing record in 12 seasons. And who would have thought with the Harbaugh's on the team? But an old Ann Arbor newspaper clipping, which we've posted on the Man of the Crowd microsite, if you want to take a look at BaltimoreRavens.com, well, it cited a run on injuries, including to John, as the reason for their down year. There's another clipping that told of Jim's ascent to starting quarterback. Anyway, we already know what happened after that season, right? Jack took the defensive coordinator job at Stanford, so Jim finished his high school career in California. And John graduated and went on to play football at the University of Miami in Ohio. He didn't go to Michigan. When the brothers returned for their Hall of Fame inductions at Pioneer High, there was this fun Q&A with Michigan Radio's Ira Weintraub. And it got lots of laughs, but it once again highlighted John as the older, quiet, hardworking brother, and Jim as the younger, confident, superior athlete. It was nearly 40 years later 
and their reputations were still intact. Unlike your brother, you obviously didn't go to Michigan. You went to Miami of Ohio. Why'd you choose Miami of Ohio? They wanted me. You know, I had to go somewhere <laughs> they wanted me. But Miami's a great school. A couple of Miami grads sitting out here right now. There you go, and uh, no, great, great school, Miami. Anybody who wants a great academic, you know, experience, great campus down there, Miami. Yeah, we're very proud of that. What's your point, Ira? Oh, I'm not sure where you're going with this, you know? I was just curious. I didn't go to Michigan, I'm sorry, all right? I all right. <laughs> wanted to go to Michigan. I think it was a great decision. Right, great thanks. old coaches, look where you look, are. Look, I'm the hot seat here, these lights, man. I was just curious. It is a little warm up here. interrogated here. <laughs> so you're the big brother. Come on, admit it. You used to beat Jim up a little bit. <laughs> well, I mean, rarely. I just fear after I, after, you always had to look over your shoulder with Jim. I mean, Jim was always coming. We had a few scuffles, a few tussles, but uh, I came out on the, probably the, the lower end of those most of the time. I, I got to be honest. So what was it like knowing at some point in time when he surpassed you as an athlete that you're the big brother, but at some point he surpassed you? Well, it was, I was fortunate that it happened very early, Ira. You know, so I got, I got a lot of practice at it. No, we, were, we used to, we, used to uh, we played all the time, and Jim was, uh, Jim was such a good athlete. Coach Minnick, you know this. He was... He was with the older guys all the time, right? He played with Jeff and John. Jim, Jim was the same way. Jim Minnick sitting over there. We were, the five of us were running around playing games and being on teams and everything. And, and Jim was just, just good enough to be with our guys. John always looking over his shoulder didn't end after their prep star days. John recalls the last physical fight he and Jim had when they were adults in their mid-20s. And as a quick side note, while John tells the story, he hits his mic a few times, so that'll explain some of the audio issues. You'll hear. Coach of the Baltimore Ravens, John Harbaugh. Thanks. Thank you very much. Sit down, kneel down, whatever. So I got this hat that says four fights. That's appropriate because we pretty much fought our whole life. So the last fight that he and I had, after many years of fighting, and his hat worked like I was older slightly, so I'd grow, get a little bit bigger, occasionally win a fight against my brother. Then he would catch up to me because he's a big, strong guy, you know, and he'd kick my ass for a little while. And then I'd grow a little bit and be able to get him in a headlock. He denies it. He says I never beat him in a fight. That's not true. I won a couple fights, but went to college, whatever. He went to Michigan. He gets drafted in the first round. I'm coaching football, and he's doing real well with the Bears and decides to take us on a trip to Amelia Island. You know where that's at? Amelia Island? It's in Florida, okay? It's nice, okay? It's a resort. It's a beach. He's got money now, and we're going to the beach. Okay, we're going to have a good time. We get out there, we're swimming around the water, you know, we kind of get next to each other, we start wrestling around. Next thing you know, we start splashing around, it gets a little rougher, gets a little tougher. Next thing you know, he picks me up in the air and slay into the water. <laughs> Waves rushing over top of us, underwater, I'm kicking. He's got me like all tied up. I'm thinking, all right, we'll he'll let me up here in a minute. Dunks me, picks me up, dunks me again. Holds me under the water. Now I'm like, okay. Let me up. I'm still underwater. Let me up. Air bubbles coming out. You know, it goes through my mind like, he snapped. All, right. all those years, all those fights, all that, like being the little brother, having to hear about his older brother, being all that. He's gonna, this is how it's going to end. He's going to take me down right now. Finally, he lets me up, you know. I look at him, he looks, you know, after the game, when you walk across the field and you shake your opponent's hand after you win the game and kick his ass, right, the look you have in your eye, right, that's the look he gave me, kind of like, kind of like, does that settle it, you know, and that's where it stood all those years, we haven't fought since, so that's what you're dealing with with your head coach, okay, <laughs> just so you know, you've got a fighter, all right, and that's why you're here at Michigan, because you are fighters, and that's what you are going to be, today, tomorrow, and when you line up next year, you are going to fight. Is that the look you gave me after the Super Bowl? Is that the... Uh... <laughs> hey, hey, wait, wait, one last thing. So after the Super Bowl, okay, so after the Super Bowl, here's what he does. So that was that look. Sorry, but I can't give away that Super Bowl handshake story just yet. I'm saving that for next episode, but I can tell you, it's kind of amazing. Anyway, after high school, the shadow that Jim cast only seemed to get bigger. Because John got a partial scholarship from Miami of Ohio to play defensive back, but rarely saw the field. He graduated with a degree in political science and briefly considered going to law school, but instead, he took a graduate assistant job on his dad's staff at Western Michigan University. And as far as coaching staffs go, it's the lowest rung on the ladder. He very slowly 
worked his way up the ranks for nearly the next quarter century as a college and NFL assistant. And even in those 25 years, he never got to the level of offensive or defensive coordinator. Instead, he was the Philadelphia Eagles special teams coordinator for nine years that spanned over two head coaches in Ray Rhodes and Andy Reid. Meanwhile, Jim went on to a full-ride scholarship at the more nationally prominent football program at Michigan. He became an All-American and a Heisman Trophy finalist, and he was good enough to be selected in the first round of the 1987 draft by the Chicago Bears and the legendary Mike Ditka. He enjoyed a long 14-year career in the NFL, was voted into the Pro Bowl, and led the Indianapolis Colts to the AFC Championship game and earned the title Captain Comeback. And even though friends back in Ann Arbor dubbed Jim the athlete and John the coach, Jim was the one who ascended the coaching ranks faster. In fact, Jim got a head coaching job four years before John did. When I was talking with Ravens owner Steve Bashotti, I had called Jim's coaching career bumpy because he had moved around so much and because of the way things ended in San Francisco. But while John's coaching career may have been more under the radar, Bashotti said it was anything but smooth. Jim's world hasn't been bumpy. Jim's world is a series of positive, successful steps from a great college quarterback to a Pro Bowl pro quarterback to a coach at school after school where he never went backwards. Mm. San Diego State, Stanford, the pros, back to Michigan. I don't see that as bumpy. I see that as what you would expect of a successful guy like Jim. They're not bumps, they're steps. Steps. Ascending. It's, It's all ascending for Jim. John's only probably trauma in his life was being stuck for an extended period of time. And he stayed and stayed and stayed. And they were regarded as one of the best special teams in the league. It wasn't until the year before I hired John that he and Andy devised a plan to get him to move to defensive backs because special teams coaches didn't get head coaching jobs. They didn't get defensive coordinator jobs to even have that step up. Mm -hmm. So John and Andy respected John enough in his capabilities to say, you may be looking at a dead end here. And the only way we can solve this is if we make you the DB coach. So that was a step back for John. And that's a really hard thing to do after nine years as as one of the top three special teams coaches in the league to realize that if he was ever going to move forward, he probably had to take a step back to go forward. To me, that didn't seem that might that that by definition that's not bumpy to you, but to me that was way more pressure in his mid forties to have to go back and be a position coach just so that he could possibly become a defensive coordinator down the road. I didn't plan for this to happen, but during my interview with Bashadi, we got a little deeper into John and Jim's personality and how he compares the two. What are your impressions of Jim? Crazy. <laughs> um, no, I love Jim. I really do. I, I think that Jim and I would have battled more because I'm, um, you know, it's so funny when people see such differences and yet it's not like they're type A and type B. John is pretty as much as type A as it gets until you compare him to his brother. But I kind of get to appreciate Jim more now that he's out of the NFL. Yeah, he's not and your building a legacy is yeah, exactly. It's like I don't like anybody that's competing against me. It's not my nature to want to like somebody that is trying to take something from me. Yeah. I wanted those wins against the 49ers as much as John did. And I felt like John deserved them. And that's being selfish, but I did. And um I love seeing Jim shaking up the college football world. And now I can sit back and just and just laugh. Why would you have battled more with Jim? Because I don't think Jim might have been as good a listener as John, a little more stubborn. In my position, I want to be heard. You know, I John's really good at letting me vent to him. And it's interesting because some people whether 
it's it's not verbal. Some people have a hard time letting somebody vent to them that is not as intelligent as them on the subject. Interesting. I find that that's what makes John such a good partner is that he lets me bitch and then he explains he either agrees with me or he disagrees with me or he educates me on why I may be looking at it the wrong way. And that's a really hard thing to do in the middle of a season when you're coming off a loss, you're dealing with the pressures that he deals with. Mm. And uh, I'm not saying that we don't ever argue because we do, but nine times out of 10, he doesn't have to agree with me to respect my opinion. Yeah. And that's a really hard thing to do, I think. I asked Bashadi how John has been able to lead his team through adversity when it arises. John had to address the Ray Rice incident, the passing of defensive player Trey Walker, and coach Clarence Brooks. He had a transition from the Ray Lewis era, and then he had his first losing season as a head coach when the Ravens lost franchise quarterback Joe Flacco to a knee injury in 2015. Right now, John's trying to rebound after missing the playoffs in the last two seasons. He leads his team through adversity because he is a a thinker and a listener. I mean, I go back to that listening. Mm. He is so in tune with other people. The empathy that he's able to, to create in a team setting allows him to foresee solutions to problems. I wanted to play that last clip because it reminded me of when Jim Hackett, the Michigan interim AD, told me that Jim has immense empathy. Both bosses individually told me that the brothers have empathy. In fact, it's so interesting to me how similar the brothers' personalities are, and yet aren't at the exact same time. Bashadi called both of them type A personalities. They're obviously both ultra competitive. And both Hackett and general manager Ozzie Newsom told me that the brothers like to do what they call scrimmage to work through and resolve conflicts and disagreements. I see John and Jim a lot alike, but I think the outside world sees Jim as the more brash, in-your-face kind of person. Is John that way? Does he just hide it better? Do you think they're similar or the same? Or is Jim more intense than John? Well, I'd never describe anybody more intense than John Harbaugh, you know, so. This is Raven's Senior Vice President of Public Relations, Kevin Byrne. When John sees something that can reflect on his team or have anything to do with his team, when he sees something, he says something. Yeah. And his way is it's best to get it out there rather than seethe about it or get angry about it and then resent the person who's causing the issue whether it be me, Ozzy, or somebody else. So John attacks the problem all the time. I think what John is better at than Jim, and uh, boy, Jim will be angry at me for saying this, is John is better at presenting a public face about it. Mm. And Jim has fewer stop signs than John. John has more stop signs. Maybe he has more stop signs as the older brother. Mm -hmm. Maybe Jim gets more stop signs as he goes forward. But right now, John delights in what Jim's doing at Michigan and the things that he says publicly sometimes. He goes, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's having a little fun. They just don't know he's having a little fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I bet if Jim wanted to, he'd be just as capable to put on that. that I'm sure he is because, you know, they're they're both highly, highly bright individuals. But I think, you know, John's just, I don't want to use the term more polished because Jim would really resent that. I just think there are times when John thinks, man, you know, this is time for a stop sign. Mm. I don't have to share this. I don't have to do this publicly. Mm. Uh, and whereas Jim puts it out there and tells people, deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> probably why one has a Twitter account and the other doesn't. <laughs> Jim definitely has fun with that. Not only does Jim have a Twitter account, but he has 1,970,000 followers. Okay, to put that into perspective, the entire University of Michigan, their Twitter account has 1.8 million fewer followers. And as we know, 
Jim has a lot of fun and creates a lot of headlines with his tweets. Although, John sometimes makes fun of him for it. Jim, how about when you were, when you were brought back to Michigan, when you, when you took the job here last year, the questions still get asked about you personally, you personally, and all you wanted to do was talk about the kids, the fellas, the kids on the team. When coaches out here want to make the jump and they want to keep taking that, step, that next step, how do you deflect attention out there on themselves and not let the drive of, of the next step for them? Hey, Jim's doing a great job of that, too. Right. I mean, you know, he's deflecting. I never read his name in the paper, tweets, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my fault. That's him. I want to be good on Twitter, you know? <laughs> That's right. If you're going to do, do you something, you might as well be good at it. Be you know? great. That's right. Well, while they've taken different paths... It led them to exactly where John believes they were supposed to go. For example, remember when John was asked why he went to Miami of Ohio instead of Michigan? I'm sure if Michigan came knocking, John would have gone there. But by going to Miami and winning that Super Bowl, John received the unbelievable honor of being immortalized with a statue in Miami of Ohio's famed Cradle of Coaches. I am telling you, in the coaching world, It doesn't get much better than that. So now, a bronze life-size statue of John sits in the plaza, joining other statues of legendary coaches, including Paul Brown, Wilbert Weeb Eubank, Era Parsegian, and guess who else? Yup, Bo Schembechler. John and Jim both spoke at the induction ceremony. We travel down paths for reasons, okay? We don't know why we end up where we end up or for what reason. I just think we end up there because God wants us there. And Andy basically says, that's where I'm putting you, okay? And he puts you with people that are going to make the difference in your life. And you really don't realize it at the time. And you got to go through things that you don't understand at the time. And for me, I wasn't a very good football player here, but I, I, I was the best football player I could ever be. And Coach Reed, so I got a chance to see Coach Reed and Kathy Reed. Coach Reed, thank you for bringing me to Miami. I'll never, I, I, I'm sorry I wasn't a better player, Coach. I apologize. I did my best. I swear to God, I did my best. <laughs> But thank you. It's, uh, it's the greatest thing in my life. And when I was a, a, a player here, we had a press guide cover that's on the stadium right now. And it's got unbelievable people on that press guide. It's the guys in the cradle of coaches. And I remember seeing that, looking at that and saying, I play where those men played? I'm walking the same path that those men walked, that Weeb Eubank walked? Now I'm walking the same path again as Weeb Eubanks. You know? But I guarantee you, my dreams never went to the fact that maybe there's a possibility that, you know, you could ever be a part of something like that. And you're part of something like that because of the, because of the guys we had a chance to play with, because of the coaches we had a chance to play for. But where this, the point I'm trying to make is that you can't dream too big. Here's Jim. I uh, prided myself for a very long time on being the tallest Harbaugh in the family of all the generations. Uh, from a very young age, I wanted to be a pro football player. And I thought that I would have to be over six foot tall, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of six two to have a chance to make it. So uh, that all changed today when they unveiled the statue. <laughs> and, uh, no, no longer the tallest Arbaugh. <laughs> and I got to tell you, somewhere along the line, as a young kid, I learned that if you drank milk. It was good for your bones and you go big and strong. And between the ages of six years old and 38 years old, I drank more milk than any person that has ever walked the face of this earth. <laughs> it's now gone down the drain. <laughs> uh, but uh, as you can tell, just so proud. There's uh, been so many proud moments uh, that John has brought the Harbaugh family. But to see, see the statue of Bo Schembechler today, uh, and then John's, John's statue as well. It says, I got goosebumps. I got chills. For as competitive as the brothers are, they always have each other's back. And they delight in the other's success. And John eventually got his coming out party, right? As a head coach, a Super Bowl champion, and with that statue in the cradle of coaches. But I had wondered how he felt before all of that. During all those years when his brother was in the limelight, while he was quietly and diligently plugging along behind the scenes. The thing I think sticks out for me as a parent is that they're 14 months apart. They moved, I don't know, 12, 13 times. They had to go into a new new town. They had each other. 
right. to get through those experiences. And then we'd move again. They had each other. Here we go. Competed in the same sports against each other on multiple occasions. And John had the knee injury in high school mm-hmm. that kind of, kind of knocked him back a little bit. And then Jim goes on to Michigan, quarterback. Then he's drafted in the first round by the Bears. He plays there for seven years. Then he goes to the Colts. Da, da, da. Comes out, quits playing, ends up, gets a head coaching job before John did. John's still, he's plugging along and, you know, he's a special teams coach with the Eagles at the time, but he's not a head coach. Right. Never. I'm telling him, I'm looking you right in the eye. Never did he ever show any kind of feeling of remorse or resentment or why not me. Okay. He always supported him, called him, wished him. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's, it's the, the greatest quality of all because most times. No jealousy. You know, why not me? Right. You know, why am I not 6'3? You know, why am I not? What, we're 14 months apart. You know, why, why not me? Never once did that ever come into any discussion that we ever had. When talking to John was, have you talked to Jim? Is everything okay? Mm-hmm. You think I need to give him a call? You know, when things didn't go well for him, it was always, looking after him and, and, and caring about him. And the same with Jim toward John. I brought to John some of the things that his parents said about him, including the one from his mom that we heard at the beginning of this episode. John and I listened to that clip together. It brings tears to my eyes thinking about it because it's huge. You know, it's, um, they both traveled a different path. And John traveled a long path um, you might say in Jim's shadow in a sense and never resented a moment of it mm. never resented a moment of it but as I said before always in the back of his mind was you know if it happens for me I have a plan and he's working on that plan I'm proud of him for that I'm a mom, and so that's very easily gets to me. Life is not a pie chart, and they wanted to be 100% happy for you, which you can hear from her, how she had seen you go, you know, in your own journey, and just so proud of you. What does that mean to you to have a mom who just gets it, like Mm -hmm. gets you? Yeah. Well, as a mom, I think that, I mean, you would, and now as a, I'm a dad, so I, I understand it way more now than I ever did when I was just a, a son. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you, you, you get the feeling parents have. And I look at my own daughter and I'm just like, as much as the greatest relationship is, she doesn't really understand how much how, she loves us, but she doesn't understand how much we love her, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, I probably never understood how much my mom and dad loved me and us until until we had Allison. Um. She talked about, she said how proud she was of like, you never saying that you were in his shadow or feeling like you were always had his back. Mm-hmm. You were always there. Did you ever feel like you were in his shadow or was that, was that a coming out for you to win that? Was, did that play into it at all for you? You know, it's funny. It's a great question to ask. And I think it's an, it's an assumption to think that, but the honest to goodness truth is that, that, that really played no part in it, which is really interesting. I mean, no, I didn't want to lose, and I didn't want to lose to my brother. I didn't want to lose to anybody, and I certainly didn't want to. You don't want to lose. You don't want to lose your best friend. You don't want to lose your brother in anything. But that's just because it's competitive, right? That's right. exactly right. It was. It's not from a, like a have to prove yourself or to you know show that I'm something you know compared to him. Right. And all the way through, I was always just completely proud of him. I can remember going to games, little league games, and when we're when I'm twelve and he's ten and a half, and and just being like, man, this dude is a complete stud. You know, this little kid, my little bro is a stud. You're He's gonna, proud of him. I'm proud of him. He's going to yeah. kill it. John went on to say that he was also grateful that Jim was so successful because it opened up doors for him. He was able to meet coaches at the Chicago Bears and Indianapolis Colts because Jim played for them. But more than anything, John never felt sorry for himself. Instead, he said that Jim motivated him to be better. Because of Jim. I mean, yeah. those, were, those were doors that were open because Jim was incredible. And, and everybody loved him, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I, I mean, I just rooted for him, you know. And I knew, I knew that he was going to be really, really, you know. I just, I just was proud of him. And I guess if I had one overriding thought through the whole thing, it was basically the motivation was. I mean, besides always, you know, being driven. You, I'm, I'm just kind of like, you're driven. Yeah. We're driven. But my, my, my thing was, I got to hold up my end of the bargain. 
I mean, look how great he's doing. I just need to hold up my end of the bargain and do something here. Yeah, you know? no, I got you. That yeah. was probably it all the way through. And so, I mean, it wasn't like the Super Bowl was the culmination of that by any stretch. It was the fact that we can both look at each other and say we're both here together. To me, that's like the that's like the metaphor that to me is just like that you just could not even fathom. You, I mean, it, it says in the Bible that God has dreams and plans for us that are be, beyond our ability to even imagine or think about. Incredible things. And that's the lesson that I've learned in life. I love that. How many people would sit and sulk and complain about not getting the chances that Jim had? John didn't. That wasn't his style. He may have been an underdog, but he embraced that role and used it to motivate himself. Well, Jim didn't know it at the time, but he played a part in motivating John once again, right before he was about to face one of his biggest rivals and coaching nemesis in the New England Patriots and Bill Belichick. John and the Ravens returned to Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts on January 20th, 2013 to play in the AFC Championship game. John was in the pregame looking up at the boards with his rival by his side, and then they saw something. I couldn't help but watch the game on of the big course. screen, you know, yeah. while our team's warming up, and it's just incredible, and everybody's watching it. The fans, the players are watching it while they're warming up. You're watching with Bill Belichick, right? I'm watching with Bella, Coach Belichick. <laughs> We're watching, you know, and 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 uh, and uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm rooting for my fan. I'm rooting for him. It's that last drive, and they get him stopped on the five yard line, you know, ironically enough, mm-hmm. and uh, and they win the game, and, and and they're going to the Super Bowl, and it's like, yeah, my brother's going to the Super Bowl, and then it hits you. It's like. I need, we got to go to the Super Bowl. I can't, he can't go to the Super Bowl before we go to the Super Bowl. We have to win this game. There it is. Jim's shadow again. But instead of feeling sorry for himself or feeling intimidated by the moment, it motivated John. Just like it always did. He and the Ravens went on to beat the Patriots 28-13 despite being heavy underdogs. So now, the brothers who grew up in the same room wore the same pajamas, had the same bed sheets, and played on the same Junior Packers and Pioneer High School football teams. Those brothers would face off in the Super Bowl. I'm going to take you through that emotionally charged Super Bowl week, but this time through the eyes of the family. Next time on Man of the Crowd. And it was unbelievable. Just stunned. I kind of wished it hadn't been both. Ravens and 49ers. She looks so miserable. Do you think it's possible that she's the one that took out the lights at halftime? (laughs) (laughs) She's been accused of that. She has been accused. First time I've ever seen any part of that game on video. Really? I've never watched the game. You've never gone back. And I have no desire to ever see it. So he grabs my hand, stick give me a hard stiff arm. What'd you say? Tell me what you said. Don't be no hugs. Don't be no hugs. His lip was quivering. What'd you think? That last play, what'd you think? It was holding, wasn't it? A parent can only be as happy as their unhappiest child. Mm, this is what this game is all about, Jim. This is all about family. And in the end, what does it come down to? It comes down to your family. Hey, Man of the Crowd listeners, before you go, I just wanted to say thank you for such a strong showing of support for the podcast. We're very happy with how many of you there are out there listening. And we'd love to have even more people find us. So please consider rating the podcast and writing a review. The more subscribers and positive ratings Man of the Crowd gets, the more others will be able to find it. Also, don't forget to continually check back to our microsite at baltimoreravens.com backslash manofthecrowd. It has content that complements what you're listening to here including biographies of key interviews I've conducted, photo galleries, and more. And as always, I want to hear from you after each episode. If you have any comments or questions or whatever, hit me up on Twitter. My handle is at SG Ellison. I look forward to your feedback and would love to interact with you. Okay, that's it. That's all I've got. But I'll be back next week with episode eight, Life is Not a Pie Chart. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. 
Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.